The drama dial is most definitely up to 10. Saul has abandoned his attempts to hunt down David and has turned his attention to defending his nation against an imminent Philistine invasion. Meanwhile, David and his men are marching with the massed ranks of the Philistine army as part of that invasion force, ready for a showdown against Israel. This is the dictionary definition of a compromising situation. Has Saul got what it takes to rescue the kingdom and his monarchy? And will David break rank and turn to face his paymasters? My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible, episode 68, The Witch. I don't know about you, but I love stories that have plot, action, tension and jeopardy. And this is what makes these chapters of the Bible stack up against any best-selling thriller you can buy in the shops. These pages are a far cry from Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where vast swathes of the Bible pass with almost nothing actually happening. As you can see, I'm a big fan of the Bible, but I appreciate that many of you are not coming at this because you are religious. That's why we're sticking to the story and leaving the religion at home. It's controversial, but there are plenty of podcasts that will preach to you or tell you why the Bible is a joke. This one does neither. It's simply a leisurely sightseeing tour of the entire book. Anyway, enough preamble. Saul is at a loss with how to rule his country and decides that his only option is to speak to Samuel. The obvious flaw in his plan is that Samuel is dead. Philistines an imminent threat to national security, Saul is concerned. The enemy army has penetrated deep into Israelite territory, occupying a hill in the plains of Jezreel in the tribal lands of Issachar. Terrified, Saul gathers his army on a hill some three miles away and uses the Urim and Thummim in an attempt to divine how the battle will go. If this is your first time with the Holy Bible podcast, the Urim and Thummim is a mysterious piece of kit used by Israel's high priest to decide what God's will is on any particular matter. It might consist of rocks or dice, which, when thrown, give a very simple yes, no, right, wrong, this one, that one answer. The answer is that God has abandoned Saul, especially when he is given no revelatory dreams and no prophet steps forward with a concrete plan of what he should do. When Saul fails to get any direction from God on how to repel the invaders, he seeks advice from a more unorthodox channel. By now, Saul has put a blanket ban on all mediums and anyone who converses with the spirit world, a surprisingly on-brief accomplishment for a king who has thus far been so reckless with so many of God's rules. In his hour of need, though, Saul backpedals on his previous good work and hunts out a pagan spiritualist. A woman is found in the northern city of Endor, and Saul disguises himself and slips out to meet her. The woman, who the Bible describes as a witch, appears flustered when the incognito king arrives. 
She tells him that Saul has shut down all the mediums and she is afraid that this might be a trap which could cost her dearly. She asks her customer who among the dead he would like to see and Saul calls up the only person outside his own family who has ever seemed to care for him, Samuel. The alarm bells ring even louder for the woman when she sees Israel's famous judge coming towards her and realises that her visitor is none other than the king himself. She is distraught that Saul has deceived her and no doubt assumes that she is about to be hauled off to her fate. Some believe that the woman might be a shyster and is genuinely terrified when a real-life ghost appears before her. However, Saul reassures her that there is no need to be afraid before prostrating himself before the somewhat irritated ghost of Samuel. Samuel has no sympathy whatsoever for Saul's plight and tells him that God has simply done what he promised to do. Saul brought all this upon himself by failing to wipe out the Amalekites as instructed, he says, and so it is no wonder that God has abandoned him. Samuel explains that God has not only given the kingship of Israel to David, but Israel is about to be defeated by the Philistines. Worse still, tomorrow Saul and his sons will be as dead as Samuel. The news breaks Saul. He hasn't eaten for almost 24 hours, and on hearing the news, he collapses. Worried that she might still face the blame for all this, the woman tries to make the king eat, but it is only when his attendants become concerned that Saul revives a little and is helped to a couch. The woman kills a calf that has been put by for special occasions, and Saul and his men eat. Saul returns to Gibeah, a pathetic shadow of his former self. It is a sign of how far Israel has fallen in just a few generations. The people led into the promised land by Joshua are now under the rule of a failed king who has just collapsed on the floor of a witch's den. Saul returns from his mission to Endor with no idea that among the Philistine army setting up across from him in the vicinity of Jezreel, is a soldier who he knows only too well, David. Readers are no doubt wondering how the man who destroyed Goliath is now marching alongside the giant's own people. How can he possibly sidestep what can only be seen as treachery against his own nation? David either has to come clean that he is on the side of Israel or follow through and risk harming his fellow Israelites. David and his men are bringing up the rear of the Philistine force, marching alongside Achish, king of Gath, who has taken David under his wing. By now, David is committed to either blowing his cover and risking the safety of him and his troops, or riding into battle against his own people. It is then that some Philistine commanders step in and put a third option on the table. They are understandably uncomfortable that they have Israelites in an army that is about to attack Israel. Achish jumps to David's defence. He has been with him for over a year and has never given him any reason to doubt his loyalty to the Philistines. Readers know that Achish's faith in David is misplaced. He has been attacking enemies of the Philistines while telling Achish that the raids have been against Israel. Achish has been played. 
For David, Philistines remain as abhorrent as any of Israel's enemies and should have been wiped out with all the other kingdoms and tribes during the settlement of Canaan. The commanders are having none of it. Regardless of his track record under the Philistine banner, this is the man whose tens of thousands of slayings Israel once sang about. How better for him to ingratiate himself with his former paymasters than by turning against the Philistines mid-battle? Achish is deeply disappointed and breaks the news to David, ordering him to retreat while reassuring him that he personally finds him utterly unimpeachable. Even then, David refuses to break cover, protesting that he has done nothing wrong and that there is no reason why he shouldn't be able to fight the king's enemies. It's a fine piece of play-acting by David, and one which keeps him out of Saul's reach without actually being a traitor to his own people. Achish remains utterly convinced of David's loyalty, and, in a moment of irony not lost on readers, he describes him as an angel of God. Still, his fellow commanders have spoken, and so he sends the Hebrew cohort back across the border while the Philistine army readies itself for an attack on Israel. It's a huge win for David, who at the time is still only 24 years old, and he sees it as a genuine reassurance that the promises made to him by Samuel will come true. Rather than go straight into the battle, the action diverts to a raid that allows David to take care of some unfinished business. Ever since Saul's disastrous attempt at wiping out the Amalekites, the destruction of this warlike kingdom is still top of the to-do list for Israel. Worse still, Amalekite raiders have taken advantage of the Philistine advance on Jezreel to raid Philistine territory, territory that includes David's current hometown. Ziklag. David and his men arrive back in the Negev three days after being dismissed from the Philistine army, only to find their stronghold ransacked and on fire. Everything of value has been taken away, including all the men's wives and children. David is frantic, and he and his men weep so loud and long that the Bible describes how they have no strength left to cry any more. Loyalty to David has gone. The men blame him for allowing this to happen and want to stone him to death for failing to protect their families. With his home destroyed, his family missing and with mutiny in the ranks, David needs to think on his feet. He orders Abiathar, the sole survivor of the massacre at Nob, to bring the ephod and to ask if God will be with him if he chases after whoever has done this. The answer is a resounding yes, and believing that God is on his side, David immediately feels stronger. David advances with his army, but when they reach a river, 200 of the men are too broken to go any further. Leaving them behind, David and his scaled down fighting force press on and find a lone Egyptian, a slave who was abandoned by the Amalekites three days earlier for being too sick to fight. Had the slave's master had the humanity to carry him along with all the women and children from Ziklag, the man wouldn't have been in a position to tell David where to find the army. 
David feeds the slave and not only finds out that the Amalekites were behind the raid on Ziklag, he is given the coordinates of where the army can be found. On the proviso that his life is spared, the slave leads David to where the Amalekite troops are sitting around, feasting on the spoils plundered from the Negev. The last thing the soldiers are prepared for is a retaliatory attack by furious Israelites. And after over 24 hours of fighting, all but 400 of the raiders are killed and the loot recovered. David reunites with his wives and family and every person, animal and stolen item is recovered. He brings everything back to Ziklag, including the herds and flocks belonging to the Amalekites, which comprise his share of the plunder. The moment is only soured when some of David's fellow soldiers appear unwilling to distribute the spoils evenly with the men who remained behind at the river. These troops are referred to as evil men and troublemakers who believe that only those who fought should bring home a share of the loot. All these stay-behinds should get back is their wives and children, they say. Any of the rest of the plunder must be forfeited. David is having none of it and orders everyone to share equally. To him, God has given them the victory and so everyone must share in the booty. He sends thank you gifts to the elders of the tribe of Judah who appear loyal to him and who have no doubt looked after him and protected him while he is on the run. The cattle and other livestock which David bagged for himself earlier were possibly put aside for this purpose. David's actions are in stark contrast to Saul who refused to let his men eat after they beat the Philistines and who failed to kill all the Amalekites when he overpowered them in battle covered back in episode 65, Giant Killer. As he returns in triumph to the Negev with his men, their wives, their children and all of their treasure, it seems absolutely clear that David really is Israel's true king. The action now jumps across to the standoff in Jezreel as the first book of Samuel reaches a satisfying season finale. The Philistine army that should have boasted David and his men among its ranks strikes Israel hard. The fighting takes place around Mount Gilboa, where Israel's troops are completely routed. Determined to finish off their enemy for good, the Philistine army bears down on Saul and his sons as they run for their lives. Jonathan and two of his brothers are killed in the ensuing fight, and the pursuit now focuses on Saul. The enemy soldiers are faster and stronger, and once they are in striking distance of the king, archers fire on him, and he is critically wounded. Saul needs to act fast. If captured, he will be taken prisoner and face a humiliating and excruciating death at the hands of his gloating enemies. The only man who can help him now is his armour-bearer, and he commands the soldier to run him through with his sword. Every second matters as the enemy closes in, but the armour-bearer balks at killing Israel's king. With no time to persuade him to finish him off, Saul falls on his own sword, dramatically ending his reign. Knocked out of his stupor, the armour-bearer does the same, paying the ultimate price to evade capture. The king, his sons and his army are dead. 
Leaderless and in disarray, the Israelites who live around Jezreel abandon their towns to the Philistines. When victorious Philistine soldiers come to strip the bodies, they find the remains of Saul and his sons and remove the king's head and armour before sending the earth-shattering news across their territories that Israel's king is dead. The victory is announced in Dagon's temple and Philistine jubilation is complete when Saul's armour is placed in a temple dedicated to the pagan goddess Ashtoreth and his corpse fastened to the walls of the Philistine city of Bethshan. In death, Saul has some dignity restored. A band of brave Israelites from the town of Jabesh Gilead march through the night to Bethshan, remove the bodies of Saul and his sons, burn them then bury the bones beneath a tree in the Transjordan. The men from Jabbath Gilead possibly carry out their humane act as their city was rescued from a siege by Saul at the very start of his reign. Have a listen to episode 64, Fatal Honey, for all the details. The men fast for seven days and Israel waits to see if God's relationship with his chosen people has reached the end of the road. With that, the first book of Samuel comes to an end. Israel appears leaderless. Will the nation remain under Philistine occupation? Is this the final chapter for God's people and their hard-won homeland? David remains across the border in the Israelite enclave of Ziklag with an army of around 400 men. Reclaiming his country seems a daunting prospect, especially as Saul has a surviving son, Ishbosheth who rightfully expects the crown of Israel to be placed on his own head. These are some of the most exciting pages of the entire Bible, and readers who plough on into the second book of Samuel are in for a ride. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Just search Holy Bible Podcast. And if you like reading as much as you do listening, Snakes and Angels, a secular walk through the first five books of the Bible, is available on Amazon. Also, look out for a special episode this Friday, Not in the Book, where I take listeners through some of the nuggets which people assume are in the Bible but aren't. Seven Deadly Sins, the Holy Grail, and God Not Giving His Believers More Than They Can Handle are some of the prized chestnuts I'll be covering. That's Not In The Book, out next Friday. See you next time.